In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes this startling statement. He says in verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. He's talking about the forces of evil and the devil. And Jesus says, you you have to bind the strong man, then you can plunder his house. And in John chapter 12, He talks about how that binding happens. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And in other words, the the binding and the plundering process happens because of the glory of the cross. Now is the judgment on this world. It's talking about the coming passion on the cross. Now is the rule of this world cast out. Therefore, because of the cross of Christ, the empty tomb, his ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the devil has been defeated. He is mortally wounded. He's still exercising guerrilla warfare because as you read the New Testament, Peter refers to him as a roaring lion. Ephesians 6 says that that, they put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may take your stand. And and so the the issue is how how do we walk in such a way that we, we, we participate in the ongoing defeat of the forces of evil because... The devil's mortally wounded, but we live between, historical example, between D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, World War II, and victory over, in Europe Day, May 6th, 1945. So there's an 11-month gap. D-Day, here's some of the troops landing at Omaha Beach. 11 months later, VE Day, Winston Churchill waving to a throng of people in London, celebrating the defeat of of, of, of Hitler and his hordes. So, so, I've said before, this definition, a, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who's constantly learning from Jesus in repentance and faith. Constantly learning from Jesus. So I ask, how, how did Jesus fight the devil and how did, did he underscore how we're to fight against the forces of evil? To, to plunder, to... to, to to have victory in that area. And so we're going through part of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in Matthew 8 this morning, and we're going to come to an incredibly well-known story about a storm. This is Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. Here the Scripture. And, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man 
is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. Incredible story. So, 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 so the background is Jesus gives a sermon on the mount, and those around him say, we've never heard teaching like this. He teaches with authority and passion and power. And so great crowds are following him. And then we come to Matthew 8. And so great crowds follow him. And as they're following him, a leper who is an untouchable and is an outcast comes running up to Jesus. And the crowd disperses because you can't touch a leper. If you do, you're unclean. And he kneels to the feet of Jesus and says, says Lord, heal me. And Jesus reaches out and embraces him, which is wild. And he says, be clean. And the guy's leprosy is gone. And the crowd is going, wow. And so more, I'm sure more people come. Have you heard this? He healed leprosy. He did this. He did that. He keeps walking. And, and a centurion, a Roman officer, a Gentile comes, comes into his presence. And says, he says, Lord, I have a dear beloved servant at home and he's dying can you heal him? And Jesus says, well, let's, let's go. And he says, no, Lord. He says, I'm a man under authority. I, I, I tell one guy go, and he goes. Another guy come, and he comes. And You don't need to go with me. You are the authority, so all you, please just say he's healed, and I know he'll be healed. And Jesus says, he, he said, I, I marvel that he marveled at his faith. This Gentile, this non-Jew who is very tertiarily involved in the things of God, and Jesus says, may it be so. And the guy's servant is healed. And he keeps on going and more people. And, and then he, he starts, says he starts healing more people. And he goes to the home of Simon Peter, one of his disciples. And his mother-in-law is very sick. And Jesus reaches out and he touches her. And he lifts her up and she's healed. And she begins serving them. I mean, this is a wild time, a kind of a tsunami of popularity. And then last week I covered two guys that came to him, and I think, I think these were smoke screens, the way I understand the text. One guy who was a scribe said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I like this popularity. Man, this is fun to be part of this big crowd. And Jesus says, Well, uh, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So, so really when he said Son of Man, he was correcting his low estimation of Jesus. He said he referred to him in a very low form, form just a, a basic teacher. Jesus says, no, I'm the Son of Man, which is a term of divinity. He said, really, I am God. Look at Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man, a term of divinity. Smoke screen number one blown away. Smoke screen number two, a guy comes and says, Lord, I will follow you, but first, according to the good law, let me bury my father. And I told you last week, I think it's very likely that his father had just popped off 10, you know, chest pumps, 250 pounds, boom, 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 boom. He's in the prime of his life. And what he's saying is, Lord, I'll follow you, but not now. Let me take care of my family and my dad. and I'll do it, but not now. I'll do it when it is appropriate and easy for me. And Jesus says, no. He says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. And what he says is that he must have ultimate allegiance. It's a harsh statement unless you read it in context and read other things that he says. So, so that's the background. And so his disciples are kind of scratching their heads, and that's, that's kind of a, a tough thing. And then he gets in a boat with them, and they go out on the Sea of Galilee. This is about 8 miles by 13 miles. It's a big lake. And while they're on the lake, the mother of all storms hits them. And let me remind you, these fishermen slash sailors had been on the Sea of Galilee thousands of times. 
They were weather-beaten. They were bronzed by the sun. They, they had been in storm after storm after storm. So, you know, but this storm is the mother of all storms. It comes quickly. The sky gets overcast. The winds howl. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, it says the, the waves almost splintered the boat. Maybe the mast, you know, the sail was torn because the wind came so ferociously. And so they're, they're sitting there. Maybe they, they dropped the mast, I mean, the, the, the sails at their feet, and, and they're taking on water, and they're bailing with all their might. And, and, and they're doing, and their adrenaline is through the roof. And they're, they're just, they're adrenalized more than you can. And, and, and they're, they're trying to scream at each other above the howling wind, and they're bailing for every time they bail a bucket, three buckets come in. And, and these hardened, weary, battle-tested sailor fishermen had this thought, we're going to die. This is it. It's, all, it's over. And they look at the back of the boat, and Jesus is sleeping. And so they go to the back of the boat. You have to realize, you're a sailor. You've done this all your life, and you're going to ask a carpenter to help you out. Pretty humbling. They wake him up and they say, Lord, we're dying. Jesus gets up and says, where's your faith? And he says, peace be still. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the ferocious waves that were beating the boat become a flat line. And the sky that was dark with lightning descending upon them stops and the clouds roll away and you see blue sky and these men look at each other and say who is this man that nature obeys his words it's a wild story and I look at it and, and I'm thinking one issue is this. It's always good to know who's on the manifest. The manifest is who's on your boat. It's a list of who's on your boat. I met a man a couple years ago. We were talking, and he found out that I loved history, and he had a wonderful accent. And I said, no, you're not from around here. He says, no, I've been in the U.S. since I was about four years old, but I came over from England when I was four, a few years after World War II. I said, wow. He said, yeah, since you love history. He says, you know, I've got a framed copy of the manifest, the people on board my boat when I came over, and one of the names on that list is a guy named Sir Winston Churchill. And so there weren't all the people on the boat, and we all, my, I ate, my parents say, tell me we all ate in the stateroom, and so it says, it's, a, it's a great thrill in my heart to know that Winston Churchill tousled my hair or patted me on the back. I said, that is really cool. But how much more glorious is it to realize that Jesus is in your boat. Who's in your boat? Now, to understand this passage, you understand what I'm going to say, I have to make a distinction. There's a difference between saving faith, which, by which we say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins as my substitute. I, I believe he is God in the flesh. I believe who fulfills the Old Testament law, that he is eternal God that takes away my sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world me. I believe that. I believe he's God. I believe that he's 
the one who died for me. But then there's something called walking by faith. And the distinction I made there it comes out of 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul makes some, some, some incredible statements. In ch- chapter 5, he says in verse 7, um, to, so we have good ch- courage, and we would rather be away from the Lord, or excuse me, away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. We have eternity in view. And he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is done or do for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But Paul says, because of who Christ is in us, we walk by faith and not by sight. So it's the active obedience in following Christ. It's not a historic faith, which is very important, something that, that you understand, but it is the ongoing obedience to who Jesus is. We walk by faith and not by sight. When I was first a believer, I got involved in a group and they had me memorize verses, which was, has been a blessing to my soul. And one of the first verses I memorized is a verse that just radically changed my thinking is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We walk by faith. We walk before the Lord. So walk by faith, not by sight. So I'm going to give you two observations and two applications and we're done. It'll take longer than you think, but this is the The first is this. And this whole issue of walking by faith. For those of you parents, I just held your babies. I think I have allergy, not a cold. So don't, don't be too concerned. I thought about that, but so don't, don't, don't be overly concerned. Maybe you should. I don't know. We walk by faith. So, so when you walk by faith, listen, it's one thing to observe and be excited kind of from as a spectator, but it's another thing to have it up close and personal. Just think about the disciples. Disciples saw Jesus teach, says, wow, what power. He saw him heal a leper, says, that's cool. He saw him just speak to a Gentile army officer, a Roman officer, saying, your servant is healed. He was healed. He saw him go into a surrounding village and he healed people, including Peter's mother-in-law. Wow. He, he saw the dialogue with these two guys who were trying to pull one over on him and they're kind of scratching their head and they go, wow, what about that? Then they get in a boat. They get in a boat. They're seasoned sailors and they go out and they think they're going to die. They're bailing water. The cells are torn. And, and, and they're absolute. See, see, and I look at this and I go, there's, there's, there's a difference between looking at Jesus and saying, this is, this is really wild and fun. And saying in your heart, oh, Lord, we're going to die. It's up close and personal. We're going to die. Who's in your boat? I thought about next week with the missions weekend and you know, we, we can affirm that there's only one way to be saved and that's through the work of Christ. That's why we have people going to Indonesia and India and Morocco and Peru and the inner cities. But it's another thing when you look and say, well, what am I going to do about my neighborhood? The neighbor's and the nations. God's going to call some of you to go to 
the nations. But he's called all of us to go to the neighborhood, to the dorms, to the barracks. So that's, that's up close and personal. It's one thing to cheer somebody that's going, and we should. But we're all called to go out. Or I thought about the whole concept of marriage, and I love seeing people getting married. And I've had this conversation. I said in the last service, a lot of times, you're, you're teaching the scripture and you're teaching young people who are approaching marriage age or in marriage age, and you say, now the Bible says you must marry in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7. Very clear. Everybody says, amen. Yeah, amen. But then this is what happens. They're working with somebody in their office or on a, maybe a volleyball team or just get to know somebody through the neighborhood, and, and, and they, they have some common interests, and they develop a friendship, and then this man and this woman go out to eat, and they, uh, they, they say, this is pretty cool, and so they start dating, and then they, quote, fall in love, close quote, and the believer comes to me and says, you know, I, I, I want to marry this person, but he or she's not a believer, and I said, well, you can't go there. He says, I know, but it just feels so good. So when it gets up close and personal, folks, it's when it gets hard. Or, or Jesus says with incredible clarity in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching the Lord's Prayer, he says we're to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then later he says, if you forgive men their sins, your sins will be forgiven. But if you don't forgive men their sins, you're not forgiven either. You can't get any more clear than that. And so we say, you know, we need to be forgiving people. Forgiving doesn't mean you don't hold them to account. It doesn't mean if your CPA steals all your money after you've out of prison in 10 years, you give them all your money again. You don't do that. But, but, but forgiveness means that you pray for them and you desire the best for them. It means that you don't go out of your way to put their character down. And there are times when people do you dirty and you think in your heart, if I could, if I could only tell you what I really want to do or if I can only key their car or if I can only kind of shoot their tires, man, it would feel good. And so it's the open, up close and personal thing is Oh, yeah, attitude of forgiveness. So these disciples are dealing with the up, close, and the personal. Number two, there's a growing awareness of who Jesus is in their lives. You know, when you see Christ healing people and teaching, it's mind-boggling and it's encouraging, and you're going, this is cool, this is good. When, we, when you see him uh, embracing lepers and outcasts and people that are, that are on the margins of society, you say, man, this is glorious. But, but, but in this context, when you command nature... It's terrifying. Listen to how Mark puts it in Mark chapter 4. He says, verse 41, he says, and, and, or verse 40 says, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41, and, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They, they were filled with, listen, great fear. That little word means that they want to run and hide. They wanted, to, they wanted to run and hide. They're saying, you got to be kidding me. So the, this growing awareness of Jesus really filled them with, I need to hide. This is something I can't explain or understand or get my hands around. 
Whoa. Now, here's where I'm going to make some applications. So there's a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've never heard of him, uh, you, you need to get to know him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a Welch physician who was on the fast track to great success. God called him to be a preacher. And so he left medicine, became a preacher at Westminster Chapel in London. He died about 18, excuse me, 1983 or 4. I've got his portrait in my study. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached... Uh, through the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, seven volumes, I think, eight, eight volumes. Uh, Ephesians is six volumes. You think I spent a lot of time in Colossians? Man, he spent years in, in Romans and Ephesians. I mean, years. A great preacher. And he's got a book entitled Spiritual Depression is Causes and Its Cures, and it's one of my seven or eight favorite books of all time. I try to read it every other year at least. And so I'm reading it in January rereading it for the 10th or 11th time. Just a group of sermons. It's a very powerful book. And he preaches on this text and does an incredible job, as the doctor would. But this is what he says. I'm just going to read it to you, and it's in the worship guide. He says, the first and greatest lesson we have to apply to ourselves regarding this text, I don't care what your circumstances may be, the Christian should never be agitated. Never be agitated or beside himself like this. The Christian should never be at wit's end and should never be in a condition where he's lost control of himself. A Christian should never, like the worldly person, be depressed, agitated, alarmed, frantic, not knowing what to do. Now, let me just say this. He didn't, he didn't qualify it. He just, that's what he says. And I'm sitting there going, man, I hate to tell you this. I think he's wrong. Let me tell you, I am frequently agitated. I frequently am disconsolate. I frequently forget who's in my boat. I do. And you know, somebody said between services, man, thanks for your honesty. You know, that's not, that's not thin ice. Same as with you. Everybody that way. I, think, I just think, Dr. I said, yeah, hypothetically, yes. But in reality, listen, you and I get agitated. We get expressed. We, we have faith that falters. There are times when the Holy Spirit would say to us, where is your faith? So here's my issue. What do you do when your faith falters? Let me mention two things. Number one, when your faith falters, and listen, church, it will. When your faith falters, I'm going to go to two Psalms. Psalm 13 talks about faltering faith. Just listen. It's a short psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's a faltering faith. You say, God, where are you? I say that. How long will you hide your face from me? Lord, I, don't, I, can't, I can't get it. I don't. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? Do you ever feel that way? I do. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then he says, but I'm, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to consider and trust in the steadfast love, the hesed love, the steadfast love of God. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. But he says, you know, he starts off by saying, Lord, my faith is faltering. How long? How long? How, how long? Then he says, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to concentrate on the character and the greatness and the grandeur and the eternal nature of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you think biblically, you pray biblically, 
you worship. You come into his presence and you say, Lord, I, I, I need to see your face. Psalm 73, another psalm, well-known psalm. The psalmist says, thesis statement, then he backs up. He says, truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the psalmist goes into this description of the wicked. It's way overblown, but he's, this is what he says. Maybe he's been watching the Academy Awards or the Grammys or something. They have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek, and being fat and sleek was a sign of prosperity. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and they say about God, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? <laughs> Behold, they are the wicked and they're at ease and they increase in riches. Then he says, it's all in vain. I've kept my way pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I entered the sanctuary of God. Truly, you set them in a slippery place, O Lord, and they, are, they fall to ruin and they are destroyed in a moment. and They're swept away by terrors. But as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. See, he, he, just, he, he says, I, I looked around me and so these people mock God and they seem to be doing great. Just study history. You know that's not true. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. So, so I ask you, do you think about eternity? Do you think about the character of God? That helps your faith not to falter. You should think about eternity. You should think about the brevity of life. I met a man last week, a young man from Charleston Southern, I was just reminded of this. He's a student there, 19. His mama and daddy were in our singles group. I knew them well. They got, I did their wedding, and then they moved to Virginia or somewhere. That was yesterday. Now their son's 19. How's that happen? Life is quick. So, so, so flying is always um, an interesting thing. I heard this story the other day, and it's, it's apocryphal, but it's fun. There was a giant forest fire out in the west, and there was a photographer who was hired by a big news syndicate to go out and take pictures and put it on their web. And, and so he got there, and the smoke was so dense that he couldn't take any pictures. So he called him and said, will you requisition an airplane to take me above the fire so I will take pictures and, and sent them to you and said, absolutely. They said, there's a small airstrip an hour from where you are in the middle of nowhere. And when you get there, there will be a small 
airplane waiting on you to take you up to take photographs and send them to us. He said, I'll do it. So he jumps in his car and he drives an hour and he drives to this little podunk, nothing airstrip, and he runs around the corner with his camera and there's a guy sitting there in the plane and he jumps in the plane and he says, are you ready? He says, I'm ready if you are. He says, well, let's go. And he takes off from the plane, you know, kind of does this, kind of gets it, finally gets it airborne and and the photographer's thinking, well, this, is, this guy needs some help. And, and so he says, now, if you would just go, go to the northwest, we'll go around the northwest, I'll take some pictures. And he says, why? He says, well, I'm a photographer. And the guy finally finally says, you mean you're not my instructor? So I mean, flying, yeah. So whenever I fly, though, I have, I have uh, oftentimes I have a few moments. You're, you're, going on, you're on a long flight, and you're 30, 35,000 feet and you hit some turbulence. And whenever I hit turbulence, I just reach down and tighten my belt. You know? And uh, boys comes on and says, we're hitting some turbulence, folks. Please return to your seats and make your, sure your seat belt is fastened. And so we're flying along, more turbulence. Now when that happens a few times, I kind of peek around at the flight attendants. And if they're serving drinks and talking, I'm going, ah, we're good. If I ever peek around and they're crossing themselves and crying, man, I'm going to be undone. But then, but, but then when we hit turbulence, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, they're, they're, you don't survive a 35,000-foot plane crash. And I'm, I'm looking at all these people. They're on their laptops, and they're drinking and talking and, you know, having a good time. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm sure all of you haven't trusted in Jesus. And you should be terrified. Because if you go down, you face an eternity without the Lord in a place of judgment. And I want to run there and grab the, the, the microphone and say, listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus and his work upon the cross, you should be terrified because eternity awaits. Thank you for flying Delta. I mean, that, that, I'm just not, I'm not so sure that that works. Just as an aside, we landed in Atlanta a few weeks ago and the person came on the you know, the, uh, the, the PA system has said, welcome to Atlantis. And uh, she said, I'm in Atlanta. And I thought, boy, we really have flown a long way to get to Atlantis. But anyway, you know, uh, so, so I'm, what I'm saying is that we should think about the brevity of life, church. And, and that arrests our attention. We just took the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, For as often or whenever you take the bread and the wine, you proclaim his death until he comes again. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a statement saying, there is an eternity coming. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. And we were made for that, to honor God and to glorify him and to rejoice in him. So number two. I mean, I'm also, let me say this. Let's think about this other day. So, so every relationship you have that's dear to you will involve eventually saying goodbye. Either when you die or when they die. It, there, there are people, I keep a list of people who've lost loved ones in the last year and I pray for them, especially on the death date and how, how difficult that is. How difficult that is. But, but every relationship you have involves saying goodbye. Think about eternity. Number two, so, so when you are 
Faltering your faith always, 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 always do this. The best argument. Always run to the cross. Glory in the work of Jesus for your sins. Martin Luther, the reformer who died in 1546, wrote that the greatest statement ever made in Scripture comes out of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. The greatest statement ever made in Scripture is the cry, what we call the cry of dereliction, where Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when Jesus was forsaken by the Father, because he became a sin offering for me, he purchased for me eternal peace with God. My sin was put upon him, and his perfection was put upon me by faith. And so Luther said that's the greatest statement of all the Scripture, is you may make us to, to sing and rejoice and be glad. And this verse, there's a new book out by John Piper called The Lessons to Learn from the Apostle Paul. I got it this week and read it. It's a very good book. But John Piper says this. He says that this verse is, is what he calls the a fortiori, a Latin phrase, verse of all theology. A fortiori means that, that it is a, a founding principle from which every other principle evolves. So a, a big truth and ancillary things come from that. A, a, a poor example is an a fortiori argument is that if you go 10 miles over the speed limit and you get a $50 ticket, then if you're going 25 miles over the speed limit, you'll get at least a $50 ticket. But there's a supreme argument or law, and everything flows to that a fortiori. But here's Piper says, the a fortiori argument is, is Romans 8 and verse 32. It's just glorious. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Wow. So... He who did not spare his own son. And the council of heaven, the, the Trinitarian God decided that in the fullness of time, Jesus would become a man, live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who is in your boat? Do you see the glory of the cross? And the wonder of Jesus. Now, let me just talk about the disciples. So that they were afraid they wanted to run and hide. I think, I think it's normal. Outside the glorious reality of the shepherding Christ dying on the cross for my sin. I think it's normal. So, so years ago there was a movie star, Mel Gibson, entitled What Women Want. I don't remember anything about it, just that it was funny. But what happened, he falls into a, a bathtub with a hair dryer and he's electrocuted. Instead of dying, though, he has this extra power. He can hear what women are thinking, not what they say, what they're thinking. And it's very humorous. And, um, but, but, but let's say you had a friend and he's out in an open field and there's an electrical storm and he gets hit by a bolt of lightning and he awakes with this incredible ability to look at you and tell what you have done and what you are thinking He would no longer be my friend. I couldn't bear it. If you could look into my heart and see what I have done, I, I want to run and hide. 
or what I have been thinking even this week. I would find another friend very quickly. But the, the glory of the gospel is that the living God, Romans 11 says, all things were made uh, by him, through him, and for him. The, the living God who made the heavens and the earth and who knows everything sees into the depth of my crud and my sin, and he says, I love you. I love you more than you know. You are mine. So it's a church. Who's in your boat? Who's in your boat? Do you see the glory of the cross? The wonder of who Jesus is. That, that, that the a fortiori argument, if, if, if he did that for us upon the cross, there's, there's a little book called 1,000 Gifts by Ann Voskamp. And somebody gave it to me, and I've, I've been reading it then. This, this is really good. This is what she says. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything that we really need? If, if trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark of the tree on his raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, and your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. The incomprehensible. And so, who's in your boat? God Almighty, who loves you by the work of the cross. Do you understand that? Uh, New City Catechism, question six, says this. How do you glorify God? Listen, by enjoying Him, <laughs> loving Him, trusting Him, and obeying Him. Are you enjoying the richness of the triune God? Are you enjoying His embrace, the forgiveness of sin? Are you enjoying the one who loves outcasts like you and me? Are you enjoying the one who made you and loves you? Are, are you loving him, rejoicing in his goodness? Are you trusting him? All of us, every person here deals with an up-close and personal issue with the Lord. We have some, we're all dealing with issues. Some are huge, some are not so huge. Everybody's got this thing. Who's in your boat? How are you obeying him? Listen, who's in your boat? It's always good to get up in the morning and check the manifest who's on the boat. Ah, Jesus is. Yeah, Jesus is. So I'm forgiven. I have a new day. I can go forward. Jesus is on the manifest. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we think of this very simple story that has profundity beyond our words. I just I think of these these battle-tested sailor fishermen who were screaming out um, in panic and pain. And I think about the living God who stood up and said, "Be still. Just be still." 
So Lord, let us realize and understand the glory of operating from the basis of sins forgiven from the cross. May that be a real a fortiori principle in our lives, the greatest principle. And thank you that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also along with him graciously give us everything that we need. We trust you in that. And some, there are people here today dealing with cancer and heart disease and the loss of a, of a child or where to go to graduate school or where to do residency or how to, how to encourage a, a third grader. I mean, they're, they're, we're all over the place. But, but Lord, help all of us to realize that on the manifest, in our boat, by faith, is the reigning Jesus. And because of that, may we walk by faith and not by sight. So thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for giving us guys in the, in, in the scripture called these disciples who are just normal guys who struggled like we do. And you used them. You used them like you'll use us as we commit our way to you. In Jesus' name, amen.